Welcome back to Bitcoin Builders. Today, we are doing a Builders Weekly Recap, discussing ETF intrigue, BlackRock reports, and Binance turning on lightning. Bitcoin Builders is a show all about the incredible entrepreneurial energy now surrounding Bitcoin and lightning. It's brought to you exclusively by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the only startup accelerator dedicated entirely to Bitcoin and lightning, and they are currently accepting applications for their third cohort. You can learn more at wolfnyc.com. Today is Saturday, July 29th. This is Bitcoin Builders. Let's go. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Builders. Well, despite heading into the dog days of summer, very light price action circling around the drain, and the general malaise and boredom that inevitably comes in this part of the cycle, and if you don't believe me, go listen to my show last week with James Checkmatey from Glassnode. Even in the context of all of that, there are some interesting things percolating. Now, one of those interesting things is, of course, the third cohort of InWolf's clothing. See how smooth that sponsorship transition was, guys? In all seriousness, though, Wolf is an incredible program for anyone who's building in and around Lightning or Bitcoin. It's an in-person program with all the other great teams who are participating, mentors up the wazoo, guaranteed funding as well as pitching to a bigger set of investors. They are archetypal Bitcoin builders who want to support more Bitcoin builders, and I would love to have more people from our community be a part of theirs. The applications close on August 4th, so go apply now. Now, of course, going back to today's show, the biggest thing of late has been the BlackRock ETF application. It triggered a wave of other applications, it's caused something of a narrative shift, and frankly, BlackRock has been backing it up with CEO Larry Fink doing a media tour talking up Bitcoin. One person who is not talking up Bitcoin is SEC Chair Gary Gensler. Despite repeatedly stating that he is unable to talk about specific pending ETF applications, Gensler can't seem to stop dropping hints about pending ETF applications. In an interview with Bloomberg on Thursday, Gensler once again raised concerns about a crypto industry that is, as he put it, rife with fraud, rife with hucksters. He added, there are good faith actors as well, but there are far too many that aren't. His comments are particularly pointed, as many have assumed that a surveillance sharing agreement with Coinbase, intended to stamp out fraud and manipulation, will be the key ingredient to get this latest batch of ETF applicants over the line. Gensler's opinion on whether Coinbase operates a clean market could end up being a determining factor on whether ETF applications move forward. Now, when asked directly about applications from firms including BlackRock and Fidelity, as well as the impact of surveillance sharing agreements on approval, Gensler said, quote, There's a lot of non-compliance in this field. The platforms themselves, where trading is occurring of various crypto tokens, though some of it comes under the securities laws, currently they're not necessarily compliant with those time-tested protections against fraud and manipulation. The impactful Ripple decision was also mentioned, with Gensler tight-lipped about whether an SEC appeal would be forthcoming. Now, for those who weren't watching closely on Wednesday at the House Financial Services hearing, Gensler was absolutely put on blast for failing to meaningfully engage with the legislative process. Now, Elliot Johnson from Evolve ETF pointed out once again the challenges, or perhaps inconsistencies in Gensler's point of view. He said, if his concern is crypto exchanges, quote, trading against you and market makers on the other side of your trades, doesn't that argue for physical crypto ETFs that trade over the counter at a reference index like ours do and like BlackRock, etc. intend? Now, speaking of Bitcoin ETFs, Grayscale have written to the SEC urging the regulator to treat all spot Bitcoin ETF applications equally, preferably by approving them all at the same time to ensure no firms gain an unfair advantage. They said that, quote, the SEC's actions related to Bitcoin ETFs should be done in a fair and orderly manner. As a disclosure-based regulator, the SEC should not pick winners and losers. 
Now, Grayscale sued the SEC in October, claiming that the SEC had treated the firm unfairly by refusing to authorize the conversion of their Bitcoin trust into an ETF. Their argument was that GBTC was no different to futures-based ETFs which had been approved. Many are speculating that Grayscale can expect a favorable outcome in that lawsuit shortly, so are sending this letter for fear that the SEC could move ahead with rival ETFs before they allow GBTC to convert. What's really rustling some feathers about the letter, however, is that Grayscale questioned the validity of surveillance-sharing agreements with Coinbase, common to other applications. They said that Coinbase does not count as a, quote, market of significant size that the commission deems sufficiently regulated. Eric Balkunas, senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg, writes, Grayscale with a letter out poo-pooing Coinbase and the SSA, the current filers like BlackRock and ARK have going. My read? They're worried they'll win the case, but lose the race. Grayscale probably sees that they're going to win, and that the BlackRock and ARK filings have a decent shot, thus seems optimistic towards approval, but I can't get too excited after hearing his Gensness interview on Bloomberg today. I think the two things cancel out. James Safard, another ETF analyst at Bloomberg, says, This Bitcoin ETF saga isn't really about the law anymore. It's about politics now. Bitcoin ETF denials of last few years have been political decisions in my opinion. Now, Bitcoiners were not happy about this letter. Andrew at AP Abacus wrote, Language given to the SEC by Grayscale today stating that Coinbase isn't a sufficient SSA for the approval of Bitcoin ETFs is next-level nefarious. DCG, which owns Grayscale, does not want GBTC converted into an ETF anytime soon. GBTC fees are 10x what BlackRock and Fidelity will charge. Grayscale's current fees are keeping DCG from declaring bankruptcy. Now, another big topic of conversation this week, speaking of BlackRock, was a February 2022 report from BlackRock that resurfaced which contained some pretty outlandish Bitcoin advice. The paper dealt with portfolio construction and considered Bitcoin as an addition to the more typical 60-40 ratio of stock-to-bond holdings. After considering numerous factors, the report came to the conclusion that the correct allocation of Bitcoin in a portfolio was a staggering 84.9%. What's more, the paper suggested that a risk-tolerant investor prepared to take a few drawdowns should aim for a leveraged 106.6% allocation. And if you weren't convinced that Bitcoin belongs in your portfolio, the report said that your, quote, certainty equivalent compensation needs to be at 200%. Obviously, this got the chattering classes chattering. British HODL writes, Three analysts at BlackRock published a study on Bitcoin in early 2022. The study concluded that the most ideal optimal risk versus reward portfolio is 84.9% Bitcoin, 9.06% stocks, 6.04% bonds, say it after me, bullish as F. He didn't say F, but you guys get the idea. Now, Joe Burnett from Blockware said, If all investors follow BlackRock's optimal Bitcoin allocation, Bitcoin will be worth more than five times the total value of all equities, real estate, and bonds. 84.9% Bitcoin and 15.1% everything else. If total global wealth is $800 trillion today, Bitcoin would be worth $190 million per coin. Now, Capital Satoshi coming in with the voice of reason said, I find it hard to believe they really said this. Is there nuances or some kind of misunderstanding in the language here? No effing way BlackRock is recommending 85% of their investors' portfolio to be allocated to Bitcoin. Did Saylor take over as CEO overnight? Now digging in, there are of course some nuances and misunderstandings surrounding the story. Firstly, the report wasn't actually published by BlackRock, but rather by a team of three analysts working at the firm. It was very clearly marked as being for professional and qualified investors only rather than for public distribution. Secondly, the methodology requires uh, just a bit of scrutiny. This was a portfolio study using backtesting of Bitcoin as an asset class between July 2010 and December 2021. 
In other words, it's pretty hard to look at Bitcoin's price in 2010 of six cents and not come to the conclusion that you should have been overallocated. More seriously, what this points out is that because Bitcoin is such a young asset that has grown from nothing, it's very, very hard to draw meaningful conclusions from traditional asset analysis. But these analysts knew that, and they still were interested in this. And what underlies it, if not the specific numbers, is what's really interesting. Basically, they discovered that Bitcoin has a significant positive skew compared to other asset classes. And while it's very hard to know if that will continue, portfolio theory would demand a seriously overweight allocation. Bitcoiner Luke Broyles got the trend. He writes, BlackRock employees 2017, Bitcoin is a scheme. 2022, those with a 60-40 portfolio should allocate 85% to Bitcoin. 2023, we want a Bitcoin ETF. Anyone see a trend? Once someone understands Bitcoin, the lowest risk move is to go hard ASAP. Now, interestingly, the BlackRock paper wasn't the only research report being handed around this week. Fidelity also released a paper which pointed out that after the halving, Bitcoin will have a more favorable stock-to-flow ratio than gold for the first time in its history. And before you ask, yes, Fidelity did use Plan B stock-to-flow model for this paper. Although the model was seriously panned towards the end of last cycle, and again as it started to come up over the last week, apparently it still carries enough weight to feature in research reports at serious TradFi firms. Now, stock-to-flow models aside, I think Will Clemente really captures what matters here. When he tweets, I love how now whenever a Bitcoin hater starts spouting some nonsense about how it's a Ponzi scheme, a scam, etc., you can just say, oh, so you know something that BlackRock and Fidelity don't? And that's really the point. What we are talking about is a long-term and very, very clear trend line in and among professional and institutional investors. Even if people who saw this BlackRock analyst report knew that the specific number wasn't really the right number to allocate, at least not for a non-Bitcoiner who's not listening to this show, the big point was what the methodology pointed to, which is, of course, an overweight allocation. Also, every time you have a group of analysts inside a major firm who are sharing this sort of research and getting traction with the other people around them, it's a de-risking process for other people in that firm to check it out, and eventually that shifts cultures. Now, here we are sitting with a BlackRock ETF application, and while it might not be the direct byproduct of these three analysts, you have to think they were part of a trend that made that institution look at this whole asset class and Bitcoin specifically in a different light. In other words, the point isn't really what these reports say, it's that they exist at all. Now let's close out this week with a few interesting mining trends. Miners have been steadily increasing their hash power throughout the crypto winter, but paradoxically the price of mining power is approaching an all-time low. The prices for popular rigs have fallen by as much as 66% since July of last year, while prices for older machines are also considerably lower. Colin Harper, the content head at Luxor Mining, thinks that he knows why. Profitability of miners has been squeezed over the past year, energy costs have risen significantly while the amount of hash power pointed at the Bitcoin network has ramped exponentially, increasing competition for block rewards. These factors have driven a massive decrease in hash price, which is a metric that seeks to measure the profitability of a steady amount of hash power over a given period of time. Harper described the chart of hash price over the past year as, quote, choppy and steadily decreasing. This collapse in price for miners could be a boon, however, for mining companies looking to survive the halving while remaining in profit. The average cost to mine Bitcoin is currently sitting between 10000 and 15000 when considering a whole range of efficiencies in mining equipment. Some analysts project that these costs could hit $40,000 after the halving in April next year, meaning that only the most efficient rigs will be able to operate profitably. Some firms appear to be going with this strategy of loading up on the most efficient miners. In April, CleanSpark purchased roughly 145 million of Bitmain Antminer S19 XPs, 
a staple next-generation hashing machine. Luxor is also starting to see a premium on rigs that can mine efficiently with a 5% increase over the last month. Coinmetrics is also starting to see miner efficiency show up in the data for the first time. And it's the first time because Coinmetrics were the first ones to actually figure out a way to measure it using a novel new methodology. After growing tired of the usual comparisons between the Bitcoin energy usage and the electricity consumption of small countries and consumer appliances, Coinmetrics decided to take a deep dive into which miners were actually on the network and how much energy they use. Their report figured out which types of miners were being used by detecting their unique outputs known as nonce patterns. This allowed them to get a never-before-seen glimpse into the state of the network. Coinmetrics discovered that the efficiency of the network had dramatically increased since July 2018 when their data series began. Over that time, electricity used per hash rate dropped by 63%. They also estimated that the network now uses approximately 13.4 gigawatts of power, which is 13% less than the commonly cited Cambridge University figures. The research was essentially aimed at discovering whether or not new mining rigs had come to dominate the network. If true, this would dramatically change the assumptions underlying other ways of measuring Bitcoin's energy usage, given that the current generation of miners are approximately twice as efficient as those that were released in 2016. Kareem Helmy, the lead author of the report, said, Manufacturing matters a lot. The overwhelming majority of hash rate is currently generated by newer generation Bitmain machines, and the network is astoundingly efficient. Helmy noted that the efficiency was first and foremost a matter of survival. He said, Miners care, they want to be in the top half of most efficient. And the reason for that is they want to survive the halving. And indeed, that may not be a given for some mining companies. During a Coindesk Twitter spaces held last week, mining experts estimated that hash rate could drop as much as 30% as unprofitable miners shut off their rigs. Lucas Pipes, the managing director at investment bank B. Riley, had his estimate at between 15 and 30%, while Colin Harper of Luxor Mining said a 20% fall was possible. Now the last thing before we get out of here, a nice one. Binance has finally activated payments over the Lightning Network, doing so one month after publicly committing to the upgrade. During the Ordinal's fee spike, calls for major exchanges to finally adopt Lightning were loud across the community. Beyond the immediate need for a cost-efficient Bitcoin payment from exchanges, the move made sense as a long-term investment if fees are expected to continue increasing over the long term. Although the fee spike was short-lived, Bitcoin fees still haven't settled down to levels below $1 commonly seen last year. The fee spike caused particular problems for Binance, who halted withdrawals in May, claiming that pending transactions were piling up due to the recent surge in Bitcoin network gas fees. Although the issue was pretty obviously caused by Binance charging a set fee for withdrawals and apparently not programming in any ability to charge higher fees during network congestion, using this as an impetus to turn on lightning connectivity can only be a good thing. Now, because it's Bitcoin, many criticize the way that Binance launched their lightning integration. Oliver Kalazek said, this is actually ridiculous. Binance just integrated Lightning, but the withdrawals are still not instant. They are artificially slowing down Lightning withdrawals. What kind of BS is this? Bitcoin Rock said, leave it to Binance to integrate Lightning and still charge a $7 deposit fee. Now, that said, there were some reports that Binance have adjusted the fees and up the speed, so it's entirely possible that these were just teething issues. Plus, there is the broader context, which is important and captured here by Farouk Ahmed, who said, Binance has added Lightning support. I just tested deposits and withdrawals of 2K sats over Lightning. This is huge for countries like Pakistan, where the majority of crypto users use Binance. This is a one step ahead towards Bitcoin adoption in developing countries. Anyways, friends, that is going to do it for today's Bitcoin Builders Weekly Recap. I want to say thanks one more time to my sponsor, In Wolf's Clothing. Again, it's Wolf NYC to learn about their program and go apply for that third cohort. Applications are again coming close to due. August 4th is the last day to apply. And as always, thanks for hanging out and listening to Bitcoin Builders. Until next time, let's build.